So I want to start um, just by noting some of my disclosures here. I have uh, no disclosures or any uh, conflicts of interest pertinent to this particular talk. And with that, I'd like to start with a, no a land acknowledgement uh, before we begin the presentation. So I'm Gaia. I'm a first-generation settler of Thumul Elam heritage. I acknowledge the land that I'm currently speaking from is a traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Ashnabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inui, and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. And from the land acknowledgement, I want to do a different type of acknowledgement for my wonderful um, research team. As you can see, Dr. Vasagishan Munadhan is also one of the team members. Um, and this uh, team is also consistent of Synthaja Srikanthan, Abhirami Balachandran, uh, Angel Gladi, and myself, Gayatri Naganathan. Um, what's unique about us is that we are entirely a, a cohort of women of color. Um, none of us holds a professorship or assistant professorship at any particular university institution. Um, so for us, this is really a labor of love, and we all come from a variety of different um, experiences, both within the research world, but also within um, social sciences, health sciences, and clinical medicine as well. So we all come from very different experiences, but together we've been able to put this project um, uh, together and move it forward. And really, I have to thank uh, Vasugi and uh, Abirami, who've really been the co-leads of this project. Um, Abirami is affiliated with uh, um, ASAP, which is the Alliance for South Asian AIDS Prevention, and they are a community partner. Um, and really, it, it was a conversation sparked at one of their workshops that um, that blossomed into this project. So I'm very grateful to be a part of it. Uh, but I can't take credit for the, the idea. <laughs> I simply contributed to it. And I'm very fortunate to work with some brilliant women um, and women of color in particular um, to bring this project forward. Um, we came together and put together a grant for the Women's College Hospital Women's Exchange uh, Program, and we were very fortunate to win um, a sum of money to be able to put this project in motion. Um, so Women's College Hospital is our funder. And I have York University there on the slide. Um, they're involved in our project insofar as they are the institution that houses our research ethics board. Um, and so um, that's the reason that they're there, but none of us have any institutional affiliation to them outside of that. So with that, um, I want to start with a really broad topic, and I know that today's topic is some is one that many people may be familiar with, but is also a topic that I think um, has a lot of nuance and a lot of uh, really interesting um, components to it that I'm really hoping we can get into today. So shadism, um, you know, the way that we operationalize it within our project um, was um, this concept that it that it uh, that shadism is the process by which lighter skin is equated with perceived health and social benefits. But other terminology that you may have heard around this idea of shadism are ideas like colorism, pigmentocracy, and terms like that. With respect to the existing literature around shadism, um, we know that there's research studies in Canada um, which focus on medical implications of bleaching use. Um, we've also seen that there's studies concentrating on Caribbean, uh, US, Indian and African regions that show that youth resorted to skin bleaching in response to various factors, such as childhood physical and sexual abuse, eating disorders, self-hate, body image disturbance, and culturally specific objectification. What we also know from the literature is that skin lightening um, practices are continued um, on post-migration. So once people you know, move into the Canadian context, they still bring these cultural practices with them. And we also know from the literature that skin um, 
bleaching and these practices, there's, there's a complex decision-making framework around that. So things like socioeconomic mobility, relationships, cultural belonging, and body image are all seen as part of that decision-making process about skin bleaching. But there's lots of gaps in the literature. There's lots that the literature is not able to tell us as it stands right now. And I think what was uh, really interesting over the last several years is that um, artists and activists have really filled a lot of the gap that we see in the literature. And this is a quote um, from a CBC interview um, with the director Nayani Vatsaladevi Diagaraja. Um, and I thought it just beautifully captured um, know these nuances around shadism. Um, for those who are not familiar with Nayani's work, she's a documentary filmmaker and she's the director of shadism and shadism digging deeper. And she says, this is an issue of beauty, of old ideas that determine what is still beautiful, of how the color of our skin has and continues to affect how we view ourselves. This is shadism. And over the last few years, if you've um, sort of been engaged in the social media world and um, art, art is an activism type of world, um, there's been lots of different campaigns around shadism. So um, this is one such campaign, Dark is Beautiful, and their um, um, sort of slogan from the campaign, um, stay unfair, stay beautiful. There's also the unfair and lovely um, movement uh, that's also been uh, pushed through social media. And all of these sort of directly um, target, you know, the main name brands that we see often associated with skin bleaching products and lightening products like Fair and Lovely. And then also Shadism, which I just mentioned, um, the documentary that uh, really um, focused on a grassroots community level to, to put forward these ideas um, to help better understand how the community um, operationalizes Shadism. So, Though there's been a lot of work in the, you know, the front line in these communities of color among artists and activists, the literature has been lagging behind. Um, and so really what we saw uh, from our perspective as, as uh, researchers was that there was really a need to understand women's sexual health as interconnected through invisibilized issues such as shadism. We also wanted to question heteronormative assumptions within the research context around shadism and also to provide access of information to those affected and those delivering care. Um, so with those ideas in mind, um, the research objectives and the research question that we were really hoping to tackle was how does shadism shape racialized women's perceptions of sexual health? And in order to do that, the, you know, we sort of uh, broke that down into the following objectives. Um, we wanted to raise awareness um, as to the economic, social, migratory, and political implications of shadism for racialized women. And we want to develop an account of shadism as a nuanced account of racial and gendered inequity that could be operationalized by communities and nonprofit organizations. Now, there I want to pause just to say that this work is already being done by these community organizations. A lot of these grassroots um, communities that serve people of color are doing the work. But as you know, many of you who are familiar with the way the ivory towers of academia work, um, when we try to you know, go forward and try to apply for funding and grants and things like that, often the onus is placed back on the organizations to say, well, where's the evidence that tells us that this is a priority area? And so what we're hoping to do with our research is add to that literature and say, look, there are there is a need and um, you know, we need to be able to fund the community organizations that are able to get this work done. And we also wanted to um, study the wide ranging impact of the harmful practice on sexual health and well-being. These harmful practices around uh, shadism and you know, things like skin bleaching, but not necessarily just limited to skin bleaching. And of course, in doing research by and for racialized women from affected communities, we hope to shift the dialogue from commercially healthy bodies to evidence-based sexual and physical health decisions. So 
I want to spend a little bit of time, hopefully not too much time. I know this is a very busy slide, um, but I want to talk a little bit about our methods. And I think our project, again, is unique within health research. It's becoming uh, more accepted, but qualitative research is really still a bit niche. Um, it's more familiar within humanities and social sciences, and you don't see it as often in health services research. But essentially, qualitative research is often um, seen as the opposite of quantitative research insofar as it involves collecting and analyzing non-numerical data. So that can be text, that can be audio, it can be video, it can be art, art you know, works that people produce. And the goal is to really understand concepts, opinions, or experiences, the lived experiences of our participants. It can be used to gather in-depth insights into a problem or generate new ideas for research. Overall, qualitative research is a way that we can understand how people experience the world. And so um, within the qualitative framework, we wanted to have a particular um, set of target communities. Um, these are also the, the communities that uh, are served by our uh, community partners. So that was part of the reason why we selected them. But we were looking at racialized women, including trans women. And we were looking at women from the Caribbean, Middle Eastern, and North African or MENA population and South Asian diasporic communities. We also were targeting women who live in Toronto and the GTA. And we're looking at an age cohort of 16 to 35. Now, this age cohort was selected because they're um, a part of a cohort that's developing and exploring their sexuality. So we felt that this, um, you know, these issues around sexual health could really um, be illuminated through the perspective of this particular age group. Um, and of course, to, to reflect the diversity of Toronto, uh, the Shades Project was also um, aiming to draw from the various neighborhoods of Toronto, you know, York, East York, North York, Etobicoke, Scarborough. And we also want to... Um, create diversity among our participants or you know, represent the diversity among our participants with respect to immigration background and status, race, sexuality, ethnicity, religion, caste, and socioeconomic status. What we, um, how we went about um, collecting that, that group of participants was through snowball and purposeful sampling. Um, that's a bit more of a you know, technical nuance and I'm happy to answer any technical questions around qualitative research if there are any. I don't know if this particular audience is interested in, in that. Um, but with that methodology, we aim to, um, to, uh, to recruit 35 participants. Five of those participants um, were, you know, sort of categorized as key informants, people who were working in um, and, and with community agencies that were almost gatekeepers or, um, you know, sort of um, experts within the area. And so we did um, key informant interviews with those stakeholders. And then the other 30 participants um, were, you know, women who fit that sort of target community um, uh, criteria that we noted. And they uh, would participate in three to five focus groups. Um, and the reason that we broke it up this way is that focus groups are really a way to facilitate an exploration of the topic in a way that allows narratives and participation. It can help um, clarify ideas and concepts and help with the development of new ideas as well. Now, of course, not everyone... Um, you know, would want to necessarily participate in a focus group, because as I'm sure you know, you can you can predict, there's a lot of stigma around the use of lightning products and shadism, and so this might be a potential barrier um, to group participation. So we also provided the opportunity for any participant who was not comfortable um, joining a focus group to then participate in an individual private interview with one of the um, one of the uh, researchers as well. 
so from there, we then used a grounding theory and, um, approach to analyze the data. Um, and really the goal with grounding theory, and there's lots of different ways to analyze qualitative data, but with grounding theory, the goal is to identify emerging patterns, categories, and themes through a comparative analysis. And really it's an inductive process. It looks at the data and says, um, it really allows the data to, to tell us um, the direction to take our themes and things like that. Um, so that's um, sort of the overarching methodology that we used. Um, so next I wanted to share just a few um, images. So this is from um, some of our focus groups. It, this was part of like a popcorn style um, brainstorming session around definitions of shadism. So we were able to capture some of these images with it, which I thought uh, was really fantastic. Um, and then part of our focus groups also had an arts-based component. And so this is a, um, an image um, in, of you know, one participant's interpretation of what shadism means to them. Um, and there's some you know, writing, but it's mostly um, their sort of pictorial you know, conception of how they see shadism. Um, so what I want to spend a little bit of time, and I think this is probably the most um, interesting part of our uh, of our study, is the emerging themes. Now, we are not yet done the quality of the entire analysis. We're not even done all of our, our data collection yet. Um, but uh, anyone who's familiar with um, qualitative research is the process is an inductive process where um, we're you know once we have the transcripts we want to analyze the data we want to reflect on that data and then kind of bring that those reflections back into subsequent interviews and focus groups so uh you know these were sort of the main emerging themes that uh, came out of the um the initial set of interviews and focus groups that we've done um so i sort of at the beginning talked about you know the conventional definitions of shadism or even the definitions out in the the literature in the arts world but this was the the way that our participants define shadism uh, so things like fairness creams fair and lovely, prejudice on skin tone, colonialism, Eurocentrism, staying out of the sun in the summer, right skin is light skin, femininity as a signifier of lightness, casteism, I've heard like, oh yeah, they work in the field, so that's why they're darker, things like that. And my understanding and definition is just that really among various cultures, there's a preference for lighter skin tone as compared to darker skin tone. And with the preference comes a lot of privilege within society, economically, politically. And what I love about um, this set of quotes is that you can see the diversity in the way that people conceptualize uh, shadism from sort of the concrete everyday operationalized uh, definitions of fairness creams and fair and lovely because those are the things that target ideas or trigger ideas of uh, shadism in, in one's mind to the more abstract ideas or the, you know, the more broad societal uh, implications, economic, social mobility, um, politically how shadism can affect people. So I think it's really um, interesting to see the diversity of the ways in which people conceptualize shadism within our focus groups. And one of the sort of broader um, ideas that uh, began to come out of um, our, our uh, interviews and focus groups was this idea that current anti-racism and anti-discrimination uh, discourses don't adequately capture uh, shadism. So I'm going to try to articulate that with a few quotes, um, and this is a bit of an abstract idea that's starting to emerge, but I'm going to try to try my best to articulate that for you. Um, so this is one quote from one of our participants. Um, well, I think it's discrimination based on the color of your skin. So this is them sort of defining what shadism means to them. And another says, like the virgin girl who gets married with lighter skin and the evil mother-in-law, or like the sexy girl for the item numbers is a little darker. 
And here participants are really describing how specific symbols and gestures were indicative of shadism. Um, you know, they told us detailed narratives of favoritism of light-skinned children during their upbringing. They described light-skinned heroes and heroines in cinema and popular culture, and the cultural messages that associated darkness with evil and lightness with good, and how this sent particular messages regarding what skin tones are valued. But within this sort of interpretive context, shadism is not easily identifiable. It's harder to pinpoint and therefore more difficult to address. So many participants also uh, talked about shadism and light skin privilege. And I thought this was actually quite an insightful um, uh, outcome and uh, insightful theme that emerged from the data um, because there was, there was a bit of conflict here as well. Um, in some cases, you know, um, within focus groups, for instance, there were some discussions around, well, shadism doesn't, hasn't really affected me. And so there was a lot of blinders in place in terms of how it could potentially affect other people. But there were, on the flip side, some self-described light-skinned um, participants who also spoke about the ways in which light-skinned privilege served them in their day-to-day -day lives. So they had that acknowledgement of that privilege, and they were able to connect it to those conceptions of shadism and its implications. And and vice versa, you know, they held that light skin privilege and therefore dark skin people um, and dark skin individuals within their communities were sort of on the receiving end of um, the oppression as a result. So here's a couple of quotes to, to sort of articulate that. I think for me, it's important to preface it. I'm not someone who personally experienced shadism. So I think that my definition may not be as significant as other folks definition. But I think it's a form of discrimination based on the shade of someone's skin. And some, from my understanding, in some cultures or spaces, there can be light skin privilege for even those who are racialized, and that can have a significant impact on some people's experiences. And I think importantly here also, um, the respondent is saying, you know, my uh, definitions, my understandings of shadism should not take precedence over that of darker skinned folks who have experienced the harms of shadism in a more concrete way. Um, again, here another participant says, I'm personally light skinned and I find that like it's easier to navigate in the workplace. I find that being light skinned is disarming for some reason to non-black folks. And so it's present by like, I wear my hair straight instead of wearing it natural. So I'm seen as less, so I'm seen not as radical. So I'm seen as less black. So I'm easier to handle. And it's so present in my workplace. And I always hear that from dark skinned folks in my community about how it's so different in the workplace and dating and stuff like that. So um, other themes that really um, became sort of prominent uh, within our data set was this idea around shadism and its impact on economic and social production. Um, so a lot of people um, spoke about the links between shadism um, and social and economic mobility impacting employment, impacting marriage, and even housing prospects. Um, Fair skinned was seen as carrying, um, was fair skin was carried as sort of a commodity and a mechanism of social mobility, not only for the individual, um, but also potentially for their inner circle, for their partner, for their family, um, insofar as they are associated with that light skinned person. So here is um, a quote to sort of articulate that. A lot of people do lighten their skin, but there's a lot of social capital to be gained. Like we said, men who are darker are treated more harshly by police officers. Women who are lighter are able to like marry up or secure more earnings. Like, why are you getting a boob job or a nose done or getting a college degree? Like if your life is going to be better, if you have lighter skin and that, and, and it's proven, then it's like, why wouldn't someone do that? So it's interesting here, they're equating this with the other types of, you know, um, uh, 
physical modifications that people may make in order to present themselves in a more acceptable or more pleasing manner to their um, to the world around them to sort of promote social mobility. And it's interesting um, that you know this participant in particular is able to connect shadism to those other practices as well. And then moving into ideas around desirability, sexual health, and shadism. Participants discussed collective understandings of beauty and desirability, noting that dark-skinned women in particular were often seen as less beautiful or less desirable. And this in turn created a lower bar or standard for romantic and sexual relationships. So this I thought was really illuminating this particular quote. Um, this is from a community member who works with young women, uh, young ACB women, so that's African Caribbean and black women. And she says, but when I see it most, it's when, um, you know, when we are engaging with youth or young women who haven't really figured out who they are yet. When you're told you're too dark and dark means ugly, you kind of don't see yourself as being worthy or valued. So the level of respect or the boundaries that you would have for yourself would be different or there would be a lack of, because that little attention that you would get, you get that validation like, okay, I am desirable in some sense. So I think this quote in particular was quite powerful and a really interesting finding um, that we were able to sort of dig through our, our, um, our transcripts. Um, and in particular, sort of focusing more on the healthcare sphere and um, within access to healthcare, um, this I thought was a very powerful quote. So um, again, this is a community worker uh, who works with uh, women with HIV. I mean, just racism in general impacts access to healthcare. So I've heard from my clients who have been darker skin toned that they have uh, been prejudged when they walk into a clinic for HIV testing or STIs and so forth. So I do see a difference in terms of treatment and experiences. I think just in general, when you're walking into a sexual health clinic and you're asking for HIV testing or STI testing, oftentimes there's already a judgment made on your sexual behavior and so forth. But for ACB women, when they walk into a space like this and being served by folks who don't reflect their cultural background or their ethnic background, the stigmatization they experience is very blatant, right? So I think, again, a very powerful message um, that we're seeing here about um, not just shadism, but also the you know, broader concepts around racism and how um, they can act as, as barriers to health access. Um, and then uh, this is sort of, I know we're sort of, um, I've been talking a lot, but this is one of our final themes that have been emerging from our data. And I think this is a, a very, very important um, uh, uh, concept that we've started to see. Um, and that's anti-racism uh, permeates all racialized communities. And it's a common thread of shadism. Um, so many of our participants here spoke about how the discrimination of Black African uh, descent peoples really persists in many racialized communities. This was linked to devaluation of those who are darker skinned. Anti-Black racism was further expressed through the connection drawn between beauty and Eurocentric hair, Eurocentric beauty features, and things of that nature. So this is uh, one participant that articulates this. Um, no, but I have been told by many people on several occasions, stay away from Black people, but Indian people. It's, it's a pretty big thing. Oh yeah, there are a lot of nuances within the culture, but from what I've experienced, Indian people towards black people is like, we're going to love your music and steal your style, but we're going to think you're dangerous and hate you. And again, another participant similarly articulates, uh, brown Guyanese people really to this day, idealize the British. And even if you ask them to this day, they would say that we were better off with colonialism and the British. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they were treated better than their black counterparts. Yeah, and to this day, Guyana is one of the most racialized, probably it has a unique racial climate to it, where I would say a complete separation between the black and brown population. 
So I know that was a lot of information that I've uh, thrown at you, but these are just, um, you know, a handful of, of the of the themes that are starting to emerge from our um, from our research project. And it's, you know, in reflecting on these and, and looking through the transcripts again, it's been really illuminating. Um, and I'm really, you know, um, looking forward to having this full project um, put together and, and presented to communities. Um, so in terms of next steps for us, where do we go from here? Um, so we still have comp uh, to complete the data collection analysis. And then we're hoping to engage in more community forums for knowledge translation and sharing. And then also ultimately to contribute to the academic literature and fill some of those gaps that I spoke about at the beginning of the session. So with that, I will end it there and say thank you so much for your patience and for your attention. And I'm happy to take your questions.